Welcome to Reformations, the Meter Center podcast. Today is my great pleasure to be interviewing my colleague and my friend, Paul Fields, who is the curator of the Meter Center. Paul, you've been curator at the Meter Center since 1990. 90, 1990. That's quite that's a correct. long time. <laughs> that is a long time. What led you to apply to the position? I think you did you apply first to be theological librarian or already to be curator of the Meter Center? No, the position was for both uh, curator and theological librarian. And I've always been interested in history, theology, and libraries. So what better place to be than Calvin University and its uh, library? Because it, this job has all three things and couldn't be any better. So some people might hear the word curator and they're not exactly quite sure what that involves. So if you had to describe your routine or what it is that you focus on in your work for the Meter Center, what would you say? What are your main tasks? Curator may be sort of a fancy word for what I do. Um, some people might take it more professionally than I uh, normally would say my position is because I'm, I'm really a librarian who takes care of a collection. Uh, but as a curator of the Meter Center, it has, I think, two main parts. Uh, one's the, the public end of it where I'm out there uh, meeting people, helping them find things, just getting to know them as they walk through the door, trying to answer their questions, make them feel comfortable in a special collection, just uh, introducing, introducing them to this special collection. And then there's the behind the scenes maintenance part of the job where uh, I do the um, nitty gritty of actually looking for the materials, uh, going through bibliographies, going through endnotes, footnotes, uh, locating them, having them, uh, these articles or these books uh, found, and then actually, I don't do the cataloging, but I actually get them into the into the collection. So, and I know that every year you prepare the Calvin bibliography. What all does that involve? That's a matter of actually then taking a body of work that already exists and saying, oh, we found this article by this particular scholar or writer or person who's a, who has an interest in this topic um, and going through basically their bibliographies, their endnotes, their footnotes and saying, well, what have they used? Uh, what did they find vital for their uh, scholarship? Do we have it? Is it something that we should have because it supports our collection? Because we're very focused. It's a collection that deals specifically with John Calvin, 16th century Calvinism, early modern uh, history, but focused on Calvin. So my job really is a matter of uh, just looking at a lot of uh, little nitty gritty pieces of information and saying, you know, I think we should have that. Do we have that? Um, let's find it. And then on an annual basis, we prepare something that's actually published as a bibliography. That's right. So the bibliography comes out every year in November in the Calvin Theological Journal. Um, and it will contain 300 items, a lot of book reviews, a lot of uh, articles, a lot of chapters from books, all dealing in some way with John Calvin. Now, we may add more than that to the actual collection, but we say, well, these are the things we think are the best for uh, this particular year, and uh, we want people to know about them. So then scholars can have access to the bibliography and it's organized thematically 
so is. people can see what has appeared perhaps in their area of interest and it gives you the reference so then you could chase that down That's if you right. were a scholar somewhere else you at least knew okay this stuff has appeared on union with christ and calvin or something and go and That's hunt those items down. That's right. So it's really so, a service, isn't it? It is a service. It is. We hope wider that community, uh, um, many people will find it useful. It's a, a very valuable one, I think. So the Meter Center is a special collection. It has rare books. It has books on from, from current day scholars. It has articles, microfiche, microfilm. Um, how does it compare, do you feel, to other special collections that you might know of in other universities, colleges? Is there something that we offer that's really kind of unique? I think it is unique in the fact that we have in one spot all of the materials that we think we can find or have found on, in our case, John Calvin and 16th century Calvinism. Now there are other Calvinist um, collections around the world, but what makes us I, unique, I think, is that we also collect all the articles and we have them mm -hmm in the meter center. Uh, so if someone says, well, I know that there's this wonderful article in the 16th century journal, um, how do I locate it? We can say, well, actually, we do have it. It's here in the meter center. You can actually get a paper copy of it uh, rather than going out into uh, the rest of the library and finding it or interlibrary loaning it. Uh, so when scholars come here, they actually find it quite unique uh, and wonderful. They'll often comment on the fact that they can walk in, find the books, find the articles, all in one spot. They can take them to their offices, they can sit in the reading area, and they don't have to um, ask for them. Uh, they don't have to request them from somewhere else. Uh, now, I'll honestly say we may not always have everything that they want, and in that case, then we will get it for them. And we will say, great, that's something we should have. Uh, thank you for letting us know and we'll now get that for you. And then it goes into the collection, it helps the collection uh, grow and service many other people. And we've had people tell us they've felt like they've made more progress in a month at the Meter Center than they did in the past few months or wherever they've been otherwise doing doing work. Because Just because everything is right there and, and accessible, I think that's very a very valuable thing. So the Meter Center is located on the fourth floor of Heckman Library. Um, how does the Meter Center fit in with the rest of Heckman Library, do you think? What's the connection between the Meter Center and the library? I think they dovetail very well. Uh, we're obviously a special collection dealing with a, sp a specific topic, subject, person, area, and yet the rest of the library supports it. Um, so we have a really wonderful uh, area, uh, history area, uh, theology area, right outside the doors of the meter center. So folks constantly uh, can go out there, bring those same books or those books into the meter center. Uh, it supports their research. Uh, we're very focused. We deal specifically with John Calvin in our little collection, but outside the door we'll have all of the materials uh, that surround uh, Calvin's work, Calvin's time, uh, other people that he dealt with. Uh, so. It's a, it's a wonderful resource, the two go together. Plus the college has a really fine uh, rare book collection as well, yes. uh, so that uh, folks can ask for things and we'll see if we have them in the, in the library's rare book collection. For example, we just had a summer scholar here who was really dealing with Fuzius, 
the library had the, uh, an, ama an amazing number of uh, Fuzius works uh, in the rare book collection. Mm -hmm. He was astounded. He was, he, some of these works he'd not used before. He was thrilled that they were here. Yep. Yep, the synergy, I think, between Absolutely. the Meter Center and the rest of the library makes it such that I don't think, I honestly don't think the Meter Center would really make sense if it was not within the library. That's right. It really has to be it has to rooted be. into the library and library and the Meter Center kind of connect very effectively to each other. I that's think that's, right. that's definitely true. So we have our rare book collection, and you and I do these presentations for students and classes, and we bring out our rare books, and we do a show and tell, and we've done it so many times, I think we could do it in our sleep, not quite, but probably. Um, are there items of our rare books where you think, oh, I'm always so happy when I get to show this book or tell a story of this particular book? Right. Yeah, there are several uh, books that are just very interesting, and a lot of times it's the uh, story that goes with with the book, how we actually uh, came to have it mm -hmm. uh, that uh, make it even just that much more interesting. Uh, so there are, there are a couple that always come to mind. Um, I don't think it's my favorite book, but I like the fact that we have Calvin's very first book of 1532. So he's a 23-year-old. He's uh, finished law school. He's already published his first book. He's an unknown author but he's trying to make his way as a humanist scholar. And here we have his very first book. Um, and people are thrilled that they can uh, use that uh, particular book. And a whole volume has been written just as a commentary on that book. So and I think we're only one of 11 libraries worldwide that I think have that's it. right. I think that's right. So that, that's just really wonderful to have. Uh, and to be able to show students and say, Look at this, a 23-year-old uh, already out of school published his first book. Uh, we also have um, a uh, catechism from 1545, which is uh, a fascinating little book uh, in the sense that at that point in the, in the printing uh, world, uh, all of the regular bibliographic information should have been included in that book on the title page. We should have known the title, the author, the place of publication, the date, um, all of the regular material that a, a book would have had. This book does not have all that. It has a title and it has a date, but it doesn't tell us the author and it does not tell us the place of publication. Why is that? Well, it's in Italian and it's a catechism. It happens to be Calvin's catechism, published, printed to be used in Italy. So for very specific reasons. His name is not included in the, on the title page. Uh, it's, it's there for protection. It gives a nice little history to, uh, to why books were printed in certain ways, why, how they were protected, where they traveled. Uh, so yes, we have several books like that that have really unique histories. And, and I think the fun. risks that people took to circulate books, I mean, Absolutely. we don't often think about that. We right. sometimes think about the reformers and maybe about some of the martyrs, but we don't think about folks who really risked their lives and their freedom to That's publish right. or circulate books. That's right. That someone else might object to. The whole control of information right. is a really big deal in the Reformation era. It is, era. it is, as it is today. Absolutely. Right. Um, and, and it's also not obviously always just the good Protestants and the bad Catholics. No, that's right. Catholic, there was censorship in Geneva as well. It's, it's a correct. fascinating topic. It is. 
Um, so we have these rare books, and there are digitized versions of these books available online. Why does it matter, do you think? Why is it important for the Meter Center to still have its rare book collection and even perhaps continue expanding it? Why is it worth doing that? Right, that's an interesting question because people will ask that. Why put so much money into buying a rare book when perhaps the digitized copy is out there? And it always sort of comes back to the fact that people still like to actually feel the book, have it in their hand. Uh, they can actually see how it was produced, uh, what notes may have been written in it, uh, what the paper actually looks like and feels like, uh, get a sense of its history just by seeing the water stains that are on it, uh, the, the tears in the pages, uh, uh, just the feel of that paper. So yes, that's a very, um, something that you really can't quite put a finger on, but it's almost like uh, going to a museum and you're standing on one side of the uh, glass, only looking in, peering at something and saying, oh, wouldn't that be nice to actually sit in that chair or touch it or eat off it? Um, but you can't, it's a museum. But no, here you've actually got the rare book in hand. Yep. You can actually interact with it I was recently reading a book uh, called The Lost Gutenberg, uh, which uh, gives the history of, of one particular um, printing of the Gutenberg. As it turns out, it's been through, you know, through its history, there have been numerous owners, and they all loved it, and they could touch it, and they could feel it, and they could pass it on, and they really resonated with it. It was bought recently by a university and it has since been digitized. The book has been put away. Right. No one can now ever touch it again because it's been beautifully digitized. Well, there's this great loss yep. there where people can't any longer actually see that original volume. Feel the heft and, it, and, it and the hurts. weight. Yep. Uh, it yep. hurts them to be able to uh, to not be able to do that. So it's it's uh, sort of a it's a very personal thing. I think mm -hmm. many times. I think it comes back to what they call material culture, the right. sense that the objects in and of themselves speak to us. That's right. Uh, even something like finding out that the stiffening of the binding of some of our 16th century books are medieval manuscripts. That's right. You exactly. won't see that in the digitized edition. That's right. They'll have no clue as to what the binding might be or what might be in it or anything of that just does not come through in the digitized version. Um, so yeah, I think that having the books, and it's a, it's a preservation thing as well. It is right? a preservation. These aren't absolutely... lost and thrown out. Right. They are preserved and they are kept and they are. Right. They continue to speak, I think, in a way that the digitized version maybe doesn't quite in the same way. Right. Printing was such such a revolutionary thing, I think, in the early modern era. I mean, it started in the 15th century, but it really flowered in the 16th century. What? What do all these printed books tell us, do you think, about the 16th century, about the Reformation era, about what mattered to people? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I think you just hit the, the word right there, mattered. Uh, it, was, it, it took a great deal of effort to have something actually printed. Uh, this was not an easy thing to do. Uh, these were the tech people of their age, and they were putting themselves and their financial interests on the line. They 
they could go out of business very easily. Uh, Gutenberg uh, was uh, not a success as a businessman, uh, as an example. But uh, it showed what was, if they were going to make that effort to actually print something, it had to be worthwhile mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Uh, that, that printer, often they were called uh, scholar printers, uh, because they were both the uh, the techies and the editors and the publishers of the day. So they needed to make a living, but they also needed to say this was important enough to to actually print, to produce. So it showed what was important sure. uh, intellectually. If they were going to make that much of an effort to actually produce something, it had to be worthwhile. So it, it indicated, or it does indicate, what was important in that particular time. Um, certainly with Calvin's writings, you can see then what was important theologically, mm -hmm. what was motivating him and others, his fellow reformers, why was it so important for them to get these books uh, produced, uh, what was it saying, why did they feel that what they had to say was so important that it was um, going against the magisterium, it was going against what had stood for a long time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it indicates the importance. Uh, it shows what was important, anyway. And then, of course, there's issues with preservation and survival, right? What we have is not the sum total of what there was, right? And if you look at what's printed, so for instance, with Calvin, if you read a lot of Calvin in his printed works, he can be quite polemical, he can be quite seemingly angry about this and that and the other thing. But if you look at his letters, which are largely not printed, you get a kind of a different Calvin. Absolutely. So, so what? In in some ways, when you look at the the survival of these rare books, we only have the tip of the iceberg, don't we? So, what what should we remember as we look at these rare books and think about the Reformation? I mean, in terms of what they can tell us, but what also they can't tell us about whose voices are kind of missing. That's right. That's right. And again, I think you've hit. Uh, the nail on the head. Letters are so important because, again, to whom were these letters being written? Not necessarily the important people, mm -hmm. not necessarily uh, the wealthy people. It might have been someone who had simply contacted uh, these, these uh, reformers and had questions uh, and they dealt with them. Or they, uh, they took up uh, polemical topics and mm -hmm. said, oh, wait a second, uh, apart from uh, the great theological items or issues that we need to deal with, well, what about the life of the soul after death? Or what about astrology? Uh, sure. What about these other topics that uh, people are interacting with and thinking about? And so, yeah, uh, the, the letters, but the polemical materials, the sermons, yep. so many sermons that were written. Uh, or given, mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's an interesting topic in and of itself. How were these sermons uh, collected? A lot of times, as we know with, through Calvin, he didn't write them down himself, mm -hmm. but there were secretaries who uh, collected this material, made sure that uh, it was uh, known. Were those always published? Not necessarily. So again, You've got the sort of the ephemeral material that um, connects with the everyday 
uh, people uh, as they go about their lives. And then you have the more scholarly works. And of course, the sermon's survival, Right. we don't have, I mean, there was way more sermons preached than we ever have today right. evidence of. Right. And Calvin survived because there was a secretary. Right. Most of his colleagues, That's we right. know they were preaching, but we don't have what they preached. Right. So right. it's kind of a funny thing. The, the end result picture we get of the Reformation is slightly skewed. Absolutely. By what has survived and what hasn't. I always think of the fact that we have Luther's letters to Mrs. Luther, mm. Katharina von Bora. Mm. We don't have her letters to him, bad. but we know she wrote to him. Right. Because he's responding to her. Right. But her letters were not thought of as significant. They weren't preserved. Right. So right. we have to be very careful when we look at these sources and think this is not the be-all and end-all. This is not the full picture. That's right. That's right. And how do you get to those voices? That's the fascinating part. That's the part. fascinating part. And that's what scholarship's all about. Yep. I think uh, asking those questions and digging in and going beyond just the, as we say, the tip of the iceberg. Yep, absolutely. So um, are there things you think people should know about the Meter Center that they may not know about that they really should be aware mm -hmm. of? Or are there things I haven't asked that you think, you know what, we should really talk about this particular aspect of the center and its work? I think uh, what we hope as a center is is that people will see this as a place that's very welcoming and, but more than welcoming, is a place where they can come and do their scholarship without a lot of hindrances, um, that they're really welcome, welcomed and uh, encouraged to do their work um, on whatever side of the issue it may be because we may you know people come with certain biases perhaps uh and we want to welcome all yep. to do all of their research and their scholarship and uh, i think that's what i have found most interesting is that there are people on all sides of uh, of these issues and they come together to the center and they're able to sit around and just really talk about these things very uh, very nicely yep. uh, and collegially. Uh, it's just uh, a wonderful, wonderful place. So I think if nothing else, if we can just uh, make it known that this is a place where people are welcome to come and uh, study uh, something that for some people might be seen as very uh, boring, perhaps, or uh, polemical in and of itself. Sure. Uh, uh, but, uh, but that it goes way beyond that. And Scholarship is changing, as you well know. Yes. I mean, the issues change, the focus, the focus changes from mm -hmm. generation to generation. Yes. So uh, it's. But the Meter Center has had, and I think over the years that you've been involved with the center, you've seen a lot of these names right. come through the center. Heiko Oberman, Ray Mentzer, right. Bob Kingdon. That's right. Bob Kingdon very generously essentially gave us his scholarly books. Right. It was quite amazing. That's so, right. We've had a long-standing connection with scholars nationally, internationally, right. who all see the Meter Center as a specific nexus for the study of the Reformation, the study of Calvin. I that's think that's right. been fantastic. And thank you for your part in that in that yeah, great thank work. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun and more fun to come. Right. We hope. That's right. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you. Thank you.